Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert in myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. Tonight, you'll hear a conversation about blood disorders and cancer with Dr. Stephanie Helena. Dr. Helena is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Hematology at Yale School of Medicine, Here's Dr. Susan Higgins. I think what a lot of people really like to know or hear about is, is how their physician got interested in the particular field that, that they're in. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your story. Uh, sure. Um, it's, it's a bit of a long story and a story from far away. But I'm a clinician scientist, so that means I take care of patients part of my time. And then the other part I spend in running a lab um, where we research the diseases of our patients. So my um, particular interests are in a disease called myelodysplasia and also in acute myeloid leukemia. In myelodysplasia, the bone marrow that makes all the blood cells of the body fails, and patients suffer from low blood counts, infections, um, fatigue, bleeding. Um, in acute leukemia, this all happens out of the blue very rapidly, and those patients come to the hospital very ill. So how, how did I get into this? It's actually a very personal story. I lost my father to cancer. And that was many years ago in Germany. And at the time that he was sick, one of the growth factors that keeps the blood counts up when patients get chemotherapy wasn't approved there. But our physician knew about it. And so we were faced with this question, well, can we get it? What can we do? And we ended up going through a veterinary pharmacy, imported it into Germany, and gave it to my father. And it allowed him to tolerate the chemotherapy better. What that meant for me at that point was, you know, I had to get involved into advancing things. I had to get involved into research. And then during my studies, um, a wonderful thing happened where a physician here at Yale, John Forrest, very enthusiastic in training young people, got me over to the U.S., got me to Yale, where I then was um, doing some clinical rotations and a lot of research. And he was a nephrology, but I did a rotation in hematology and met two incredible mentors, Thomas Duffy, Dr. Thomas Duffy and Dr. Joel Rappaport. And when I worked with them, I was just amazed by their empathy for patients, by their unconditional treatment and love for their patients. Yeah, I think that um, uh, just actually uh, gave an award, one of the Smilo Awards to, to Dr. Duffy, a, a sort of a lifetime achievement award. And he's one of the uh, pillars, along with Dr. Rappaport, who've trained really generations of, of physicians. And often those are the people that influence us early in our career. So it's fascinating to hear about your interaction with them. Um, now, you mentioned uh, the myelodysplastic syndrome and AML, and, and these kind of come under this 
uh, I think, a, a sort of a vague notion for the public of things that happen in the blood. And, and a lot of people don't understand sort of how blood cells are made and what happens in the bone marrow. Maybe you could give us a little educational uh, moment about that. Sure, happy to. So if you think, um, if you think about um, the, the stem cell, so the stem cell is a very important cell in our body, and it sits in the bone marrow in a, a niche where it's being very well taken care of. Um, if you think about the cells in our blood, the red cells that carry oxygen, the platelets that keep us from bleeding, the white cells that fight infection, those have to do a lot of work and they get used up. And so every day, the body has to make billions of these cells. And all these cells come from quite very, very few stem cells that in the, sit in the bone marrow. Um, so if you now think about, well, how, well, how could cancer happen then? Think about the, the stem cell as the original book. And now you want to get a book to, to everyone. You need to print a lot of or write a lot of books. And imagine this book now having to be written a billion times every day. So it doesn't matter how good the proofreaders are. Mistakes are going to happen. And a lot of mistakes are not going to be important. They're going to get fixed or they are just not being noticed. Nobody cares about them. But imagine a mistake happens in the book that's either really, really bad or really, really good. That mistake is going to go viral. And suddenly, all the books are changed. And that is kind of what leukemia is, what cancer is. It is maybe one cell, one book that goes wrong and suddenly takes over the whole system. So you have some particular interests and things that you're looking at in your lab. I'd love to hear about some of that. Uh, sure. So I we kind of approach um, myelodysplasia, so MDS, and leukemia two ways. One is that we, we study a particular protein that is altered in about 30% of patients with a subtype of myelodysplasia. And we perform all sorts of very technical experiments to figure out, well, how is it functioning wrong? What does it do? How does it, in the end, lead to the disease? How does it interact with other things that went wrong? And ultimately, of course, is there something we can do about that wrong protein to make the disease better or even cure it? The other way we are looking at, at, at the diseases, what we've learned over time is that every patient's disease has a unique aspect to it. And we know that one type of treatment, this aggressive chemotherapy, doesn't work for all patients. It's also very toxic, and so it definitely doesn't work well in elderly patients. And so the goal is to identify specific abnormalities for patient diseases that we can then target. And that's where this term targeted therapy comes from. And what we do in our laboratory in collaboration with um, Richard Flavelle at Yale, we, we study individual patients, MDS, individual patients' leukemias in a preclinical, in an animal model that then allows us to test different treatments alone in combination to see what works best. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of people aren't aware of just how much groundwork is laid before you even get to the point of a clinical trial with these preclinical models, various animal models. And for, for many disease sites and, and therapies, that takes many, many years, correct? It does take many years. It, it takes many years, and it takes a lot of joint efforts from people and all sorts of um, specialties. So you could think, okay, the physician conducting the clinical trial is the person, um, but you have to remember that even the person who developed the drug did that based on knowledge that a, a very large group of researchers have generated. And sometimes you would think that you only have to look for the things that in the end seem to very directly lead to a treatment. But we have to remember that we need to understand a lot of mechanisms. We need to understand a lot of details to to develop these therapies so that they're specific, they don't affect other cells, they don't wreak havoc in a different way that we don't expect. Yeah, so it takes a universe. And then we need these this special group of uh, clinician scientists who know sort of both parts of the both halves of the game, the what takes place in the lab and what takes place in the clinic with actual patients. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what we call MD-PhDs, clinician scientists, and, and their importance right now, especially in this, I think, golden era of targeted therapies. Um, I think you're a great example of that, um, but a lot of people, they look at people as either scientists or physicians. How do you like having both of those hats and both of those roles? Um, that, that's a really good question. I, I absolutely love it because when I go to my laboratory, I bring, I bring my patients' faces with me. I remember them when I do what I do, and in particular, when things don't work out in the laboratory, which happens a lot because we are not doing the things that are already known. We're always pushing the frontier. We always move one step further into the unknown. Sometimes we get frustrated and then we're like, why on earth am I doing this? But to remember that you just saw somebody who's suffering from the disease, whose relatives are suffering from their loved one's disease, that really keeps you going in the laboratory. The role of a clinician scientist is, is interesting and I think it is essential. And one of our jobs here at Yale really is to train young people into that direction because treating patients, but also having a pretty good idea of basic science allows you to, to maybe ask the right questions. It also allows you to talk to both sides. So it allows us to talk to the very, very superb basic scientists who are absolute pros at incredibly difficult methods, concepts, computational analysis. And it also allows us to talk to our full-time clinical colleagues who think about their patients all day long, but when it comes to understanding the mechanism of a molecule, just simply don't have the time. And as clinician scientists, we're privileged. We're also a bit at a, at a risk, I think, of, of dying out because in this era of funding, once you have to split your time between more than one thing, you may lose out. And I think that's where um, 
everybody's efforts to create a good funding environment, foundations that um, have transformative ideas that understand that collaboration is key. Um, people are still willing to, willing to pay their taxes to support research. Um, people who donate to um, to organizations that fund research is um, it's it's wonderful. It's essential. Yeah, I think. Um, uh there are a small percentage of all physicians who can wear all those hats and have the ability to talk to the scientists, uh, talk to each other as clinicians, and then also translate that into trials and discuss that with patients. That's a really uh, great skill set, but that skill set, as we discussed, um, has to be nurtured and ingrained in people by the institution. Uh, it has to be valued by also, the philanthropists, now that we have an era where funding uh, for, for the labs and for all of the people behind uh, these experiments and trials uh, is dwindling uh, quickly. Definitely. And your, even your lab, maybe, you know, I don't think people even understand when you go into the lab how many people you have behind that sort of machine. It's like a little uh, kind of in industry uh, of your own that yes. you have postdocs. And maybe you could tell us what, what goes on in a lab for a person like yourself, a clinician scientist. So in the laboratory, everything starts with an idea. And um, that idea comes in general from from reading, from reading a lot, talking to people. And then once you have an idea, you want to make sure that it's a good idea. And that involves more reading, more discussions with people who are knowledgeable in the field. So then when you decide, oh, yeah, it's, it's a good idea, we try to do the, in a way, simplest but most meaningful experiments to assure we're on the right track. And that's where, you know, the postdocs, the technicians, the students come in, um, where we develop methods or we learn methods from other people. And once we have those first experiments that tell us, yeah, it's a good idea and it's going to lead us a step ahead or a step forward, then comes this part where, well, how are we going to do this? How can we afford? How can we pay for the experiments? How can we pay for a person to do, now to pursue that question, that idea? And that's when we then apply for funding. If we're then lucky or we have convinced the scientific community that it's a good idea and that we have the skills and the support to pursue this idea and we get the funding, then a lot of work starts. And um, every day we, we further, um, we, we approach the idea, we approach the question from all sorts of sides to make sure it's sound. And then sometimes we discover something we totally didn't expect. And, um, but if we then have a good day and we really bring the science forward, it's extremely exciting. And that's then, you know, and then always, as I said, thinking about the patients we could eventually benefit, that's what also keeps us going even on bad days. Well, that's great. And uh, I think that bridging of the science and the, the patient care, we're going to return to that in a moment. Um, uh, but right now we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about in, uh, information about hematology with Dr. Stephanie Helena. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. 
In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year and nearly 200,000 nationwide. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to make innovative new treatments available to patients. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Susan Higgins, and I'm talking with my guest, Dr. Stephanie Helena, about blood disorders and cancer. Um, Stephanie, we were just discussing some of the things that uh, you do as a clinician scientist in the lab and, and how exciting that is. I think one of the um, one of the products that's come out of a lot of the research in the labs are these targeted therapies and, and really I think we're in sort of the golden age, entering into the golden age of targeted therapies. And for the types of cancers that you treat, these are especially important. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So really until not too many years ago, um, the, the mainstay of um, treatment for leukemia and myelodysplasia really was partly still is very aggressive chemotherapy with two or three agents. And um, my mentors have been using those during their training. And, and those are just sledgehammers. They're generally toxic to the cells. But that also means that they're very toxic to, to the body, toxic to the patient, and they make the patients very sick. But, but they work. So with all, the, with all the knowledge that we have gained over the past decades about leukemia, you know, when it was first discovered, it was just an anatomic description. Oh, the bone marrow looks white, greenish, so not good, instead of red. Now we have a totally different understanding of what's going on in the bone marrow, what's going on really down to the molecular level in the cell. So what drives that cell to be bad, to take over everything? And... Those drivers are proteins. They are molecules in the cell that do, when they're good, do very important things. But they go bad, and so suddenly these cells no longer listen to any of the control elements in the body. They no longer do what they're supposed to do. They're always on. They don't turn off. And these these targeted therapies take advantage of the abnormalities in those proteins. And these small molecules specifically attach to the protein in those areas where they're mutated, so where they are abnormal, and and turn them off. And if we're really, really lucky, those target therapies only turn off the protein that is abnormal, and they don't even turn off the, the normal protein in the cell. But even if that is not the case, our body can sometimes just afford to turn off that protein and even the normal parts a little bit. And so suddenly the, the, the cancer cell, the leukemia cell that has become addicted to that driver no longer, no longer has it. It's turned off. 
And that pushes back these leukemia cells that makes them maybe vulnerable then to other therapies. And what is currently going on in clinical trials, because these are very, very new drugs, compounds that have never been given to human. So now we're giving them when we have no other therapy left. We do the standard that we know so far works the best up front. But if the leukemia does come back and it can happen, then we now offer patients these trials that you mentioned. And we can they can help the patients, which is always our our most important thing. And it's very, very tightly controlled that if we realize they hurt the patients, they don't help, these trials stop. And it's it's very regulated and it's good that way. If we then see that in this very difficult setting where the cancer has come back, if we then see that these new drugs work, then we can now uh, use them earlier and earlier in the treatment. And ideally, we can use them upfront. Somebody comes in with a diagnosis of leukemia, we can now use that new targeted therapy, maybe with the regular chemo or um, with the regular chemo, but we can reduce the regular chemo to have less toxicity. And ultimately, the goal is to, to make these leukemia, these cancer cells, go away for good. Yeah, and I think um, we were talking a little bit about this at the break, but, you know, clinical trials uh, really offer us so many opportunities. I know I treat breast cancer, and it, it hadn't been for the hundreds mm -hmm. of thousands of women that did the original studies, uh, for example, with lumpectomy and radiation as opposed to mastectomy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't mm -hmm. be able to treat all of these hundreds of thousands of patients that followed, especially in a very common disease like breast cancer. It affects mm -hmm. millions of people eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, so one of the things is, is you know, it, patients enroll in trials, we can benefit people in the future. So they're hopefully doing something good for themselves and benefiting people that will come after them. And I think especially with the targeted therapies, uh, things are moving quickly and these trials are really, um, actually the, the advantages will get translated hopefully into someone, not only the patient, but someone right down the line who could benefit from that information. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it is fair to say that all of our patients actually hold us to a very high standard because, right, so I run a lab, but there's no point to study a disease that doesn't exist. And so even in the most difficult times when somebody's diagnosed with leukemia, when somebody's diagnosed with myelodysplasia or with cancer, and they have to have you know, some blood taken, a bone marrow biopsy done, we ask them, listen, are you willing to give us some for research? And even in that difficult situation, the patients say yes. And it is the same with clinical trials. Patients are, are willing to enroll because, yes, our, all our data says this hopefully is going to help you. But they're also doing this for the people to come who are going to go through that same difficult situation. And I think the medical scientific community thanks all the patients for that, doing that. That's right, because we owe so much to the people mm -hmm. who are willing to enroll. And uh, really, I think in many of our uh, disease sites, like breast cancer especially, it really has revolutionized uh, yes. the way that we do things. And I think we're seeing the same uh, with the leukemias. It is, yes. Um, and I think that there's also a huge part of our cancer center. Um, again, the behind-the-scenes story is that there's a huge mm -hmm. part of our cancer center that's 
dedicated just to this particular um, science of running trials. And we have the HIC, the IRB, and uh, our patients hold us to standards, and so does the FDA. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so we absolutely. have a whole team behind us that um, makes sure that we're asking the right questions and mm -hmm. that we're monitoring mm -hmm. the patients and that we're filing uh, all of the uh, side effects so that we can actually uh, move things forward in the, the most regulated, and it's very highly, highly regulated process. So um, I think you know, we're on the forefront. We sit down, I'm running a drug trial. We sit down and talk with patients about these trials, but there's a, a huge team behind us that makes everything uh, you know, go well every yes, single day. It is. And and that actually goes, the, the team actually happens at the national level. It happens at the at an international level. So very frequently we have a patient who is on a trial or even who's getting an approved drug and suddenly we see something that we don't understand. We can all pick up the phone, we can all um, write a quick email to colleagues, other centers in the US internationally and we all share that information with each other, again, to, to keep our patients safe, to make the treatment the best we can, and to advance science. And of course, there are the, the societies that we're you know all a member of. I'm a member of ASTRO, you're mm -hmm. probably a member of okay. ASH, yes. and these um, meetings that we go to every year where we can in person share all this information. I, I mean, I really find that the highlight of my, my year, um, going there and being involved in that and presenting our data, um, uh, you know, it's really a thrill. And you feel like, as you said, if you're bridging both sides of that, the research, the trials, then you bring that to your colleagues. It's, it's really a, a, a great privilege and honor, and it, it's just a great professional um, endeavor. And maybe you could talk about some of the things that you've done or presented at ASH, any particular research project that you have coming down the pike that you're excited about? Uh, sure, sure. So um, we, we started working ba based on other studies going on in our lab and our interest in mitosplasia. Um, we, you know, we heard this presentation by a Japanese group, um, Dr. Ogawa's group on these recurrent mutations and so-called splicing factors. So splicing factors are those proteins that modify the messenger that takes the information from the nucleus to the protein machinery. And um, we were very intrigued by one of those proteins and how it could potentially lead to mitosplasia. And and then actually assembled a team, assembled a team of people at Yale and um, outside Yale, even um, from Switzerland, to to study that protein. And that's called SRSF2, and it's a splicing factor, and it alters how this protein binds to this RNA, this messenger, and then ends up re making abnormal proteins in the cell and reducing the protein level. And um, what's actually has been very fascinating is by doing that work, I was able to tell about our work to um, to the, the members of, uh, of a foundation, for example, the Evans Foundation and Edward P. Evans um, passed away from myelosplasia and decided to, to, to fund this, to fund research into this. And now this Evans Foundation and other foundations too for other diseases, they're now gathering a whole team of researchers interested in that disease to to pull them all together in a collaborative way to advance this field rapidly. And I think, um, again, in isolation, I couldn't do that. But now 
in collaboration with colleagues um, all over the U.S., we can, I think, advance this field. We can advance our knowledge, and we may be able to to target what seems to be untargetable, the spliceosome. And and actually, it's it's so fascinating when you have a group that's. Uh, uh, joining together physicians, physician scientists, and then hopefully finding people uh, with the vision uh, yes. to support mm-hmm. you. And, and this is where we're also in uh, a very interesting point in medicine where we need to have a little bit more help as the uh, funding from government uh, and other sources uh, decreases. We need a little more help from philanthropists and other groups to help us help others. Yes, um, for and, sure. And, uh, you know, I think that we're also appreciative of those groups that have that kind of vision and can really join with us to support what are really kind of, again, large groups of physicians, researchers, people in the lab. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot that goes into it, and we, we really need that help. Um, I was wondering what other things in the field, you talked about your your research, uh, the spliceosome. I was wondering, in terms of the field of hematology, um, what are some things that, that people, in terms of concepts, are most uh, seeing as the frontier? What would you consider the frontier, where you're, where you're heading? Um, I, I think the, the amazing thing about science today and clinical medicine today is I think our front is broad. Um, because we understand the molecular mechanisms in the cells so well, we suddenly understand how different systems that maybe were thought to be completely independent of each other can actually work together. And so we talked about these targeted therapies. So those target proteins, kinases in the protein in, in the cytoplasm, now there are new drugs that suddenly can enter the nucleus, and then. You ha- nowadays you have to talk about immune therapy, right? We can now um, modify the immune system of the body to attack these cancer cells. And if we can then take that immune therapy plus these other targeted therapies together, we can probably cure cancer. Dr. Stephanie Helena is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Hematology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.